Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We turn our attention to a very special part of God's revealed real estate. We're going to begin looking at verses 29 and 30 over the next few weeks, but let me put it in context with verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me begin by just saying welcome to the deep end of the pool. Uh, We are coming up with our study of Romans to the doctrine, the great doctrine of predestination, of election, of foreknowledge. I think it's fair to say that the doctrine of predestination has raised more passionate debate than perhaps anything in God's word. And over the next few weeks and months, as we move throughout chapter 8 into chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, we're going to dig into the subject with considerable detail. Now, as we begin this, I want to tell you we're not even going to get to verse 29 today. We're just going to talk about the the ground rules of thinking about this important doctrine and this important subject. I want to ask you to be patient. This sounds a little odd. I want to ask you to be present because if you miss over the next few weeks, uh, you're going to see some, uh, uh, some gaps maybe in the thinking, and it's important, even if you miss, to maybe go back and listen uh, to the sermon. I, I don't think I've ever promoted, go listen to my sermon, but this is important enough to put the pieces of the puzzle together to get a complete picture. We will be walking on a theological high wire, and it's going to be easy to fall off one side or the other. And if you fall off on either side, you're going to fall into error. Now, as I've studied and interacted with people over the years about election, about predestination, the question of the truth of these doctrines can quickly evaporate with emotion. Some 200 years ago, William Warburton wrote this. To mention it, predestination, before some people is like shaking the proverbial red flag before an enraged bull. It arouses the fiercest passions of their nature and brings forth a torrent of abuse And calumny, that's defamation, that's vilification. But because men have fought against it, or because they hate it, or perhaps misunderstand it, it is no reasonable, that's no reasonable or logical cause that we should run or turn from the doctrine adrift, or turn adrift from this doctrine, or cast it behind our backs. Here it is. The real question, the all important question is this. Not how do people receive it, but is it true? I have come to believe that the most misunderstood theological term in our generation is the term Calvinism. 
I've been asked countless times, Rick, are you a Calvinist? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question to ask. It's a more interesting question to answer. So every time I'm asked, are you a Calvinist? The first thing I say is, what do you mean when you say Calvinist? Ask 10 people to define Calvinism, and you're going to find more answers than you might suspect. However, in all of those answers, you're going to find the words predestination, foreknowledge, the sovereignty of God, election, or all of the above. So how do we wrestle with this? How do we understand these issues? John Calvin, just as a footnote, was a French theologian born in 1509. He died in 1564, two months shy of his 55th birthday. He was a prominent figure in the history of the Protestant Reformation and considered the Reformation's greatest thinker and the Reformation's greatest theologian. His most influential years were spent in Geneva, Switzerland, where he taught, pastored, preached, trained pastors, and wrote. Calvin's most influential work, his most influential writing, endured and has endured to this day as one of the church's primary theologies over all of Reformation history. It's called Institutes of the Christian Religion. Thousands of pages. Many people believe that this theological tome is... um, only devoted to God's sovereignty and predestination. I was in the Reformation Museum in Geneva a few years and saw a presentation on Calvin, and basically that's what this presentation said, that Calvin was all and only about predestination. I feel like I need to take up for our big brother, John Calvin, on that issue, though. Listen to what James Boyce says. Calvin is known for teaching about predestination, but a discussion of the doctrine does not appear until near the end of book three in his Institutes. After more than 900 pages devoted to other themes and more than two-thirds of the way through the volume. So Calvin didn't get to Calvinism until 900 pages into his theology. That should be informative to us. All of those pages that preceded are about the great doctrine of God, the great doctrine of salvation, the glories of the cross. Let me say to you, by the way, that few theologies have rivaled this work, and it's worth your attention. If you want to read it, if you want to study it, I highly recommend it. Just take it and start noodling through it and take your time, and I think you will be blessed. When Calvin does get to the issue of predestination, he provides wise warning Wise counsel to those who delve into this subject. I think his words are worth noting this morning as we begin the study. Calvin writes this. First then, let them, that's us who are studying it, remember that when they inquire into predestination, they are penetrating the sacred precincts of divine wisdom. If anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. Great picture. For it is not right for a man unrestrainedly to search out things that the Lord has willed to be hid in himself and to unfold from eternity itself the sublimest wisdom which he would have us revere but not understand that through this also he should fill us with wonder. He has set forth by his word the secrets of his will 
that he has decided to reveal to us. These he decided to reveal insofar as he foresaw that they would concern and benefit us, end quote. So even Calvin says, you can't be reckless and walk into this subject. You can't be reckless and walk into this doctrine. You can't make too many assumptions and you have to be willing to say these are the divine precincts of wisdom that I can only get glimpses of. Wise counsel as we begin the verses here before us in Romans 8. Several years ago, I was on a bear hunt in Alaska. When I wrote this paragraph in my notes, I thought I was on a, I was wanting to say I was on a hike in Alaska and everyone would know why I was there. So I was on a bear hunt in Alaska, okay? It was uh, what could be called a drop hunt. And what that was, was that a boat took us up uh, several miles, uh, several hours into the Prince William Sound, dropped us off, and we were uh, there for a week. No radio, no, uh, no phone, and, uh, hundreds of miles from the nearest road. Um, it's a perfect week in my own mind. But being hundreds of miles from the nearest uh, road in unfamiliar territory, camping in a tent where all you have between you and dangerous critters is a piece of nylon is quite an experience. One day I was uh, wanting to hike up to a ridge to get a good vantage point to glass to look in, on, in the valley and, and see if we could spot anything. And a friend of mine and I sloshed our way through a marshy bog that would grab your boot and wouldn't let you go until you won a battle pulling it out of the suction of that bog up and down, back and forth, crossing streams and creeks, fighting through foliage with no trail. We were only a few hundred yards away from the base of the ridge that we wanted to climb when we ran into a, a small river. Now, I say small, relatively speaking, because it was too wide to cross or jump across. It was too deep to, um, uh, to wade across. It was too fast. It was too cold to cross. We scouted upstream, we scouted downstream, we were looking for a way to cross, and there were only rapids and waterfalls. We were not going to get to that ridge. No matter what we tried, no matter what we thought, there was no way to get across. So after having put so much effort in to get to that point, we were, to be honest, just absolutely frustrated. We were exasperated, we were exhausted, it had taken us hours to get to that point, so we decided to stop there and pull out our backpacks and have lunch on the edge of the river to regroup and then head back towards camp. And it wasn't until we sat by the river and stopped that we actually began to notice its beauty. Bluish green water just rolling across these water-eroded round stones boulders in the middle, whitewater rapids, moss-covered banks, and this sound that was just so calming from those rapids that it washed away just about every worry you had for the moment. It was amazing. The obstacle that had stopped us actually became an object to be appreciated. This morning, we're coming up to a theological obstacle. We're not going to be able to cross it, wade across it. We're not going to be able to figure it out. We're not going to own this river. There are some theological truths that are in water way over our heads. They're on a shelf. We, cannot, we can see and observe, but we can't reach and we can't touch it. This truth of predestination, of election, of foreknowledge, we can see it and admire it. It's behind thick theological glass, but you can't touch it and hold it. You just have to see it and believe it's true. 
Now, here we are in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. I've known this was coming since we began our study of Romans 8, uh, since we began our study of Romans, actually, the whole book, 86 sermons ago. And I've looked forward to this section with great anticipation since then. This is one of the most comforting and encouraging sections of the entire corpus of God's word. Look at the text for a moment. Did you see the words? Foreknowledge. Predestination. If you look down to verse 33, election. Three of the most controversial concepts in the Bible are all in view in our journey through this eighth chapter of Romans. And these are concepts for which we need to make very careful and proper preparation to understand, to believe, and to accept. As Calvin said, we can't be haphazard. We can't be careless when we walk into this subject. So what I want to do today is just talk about it. I want to prepare us for what we're going to discover in the coming few months as we learn from this section of Romans. And please listen. You should be aware that from this point in chapter 8 through chapter 11, we're going to wrestle with God's sovereignty and salvation over and over and over. We haven't done that much throughout the book of of, uh, Romans. You can't accuse me of being a Calvinazi. We're dealing with these issues because God's word in our exposition has brought us to these issues. So what I want to do is begin with a plea to you, a begging plea, and that's a plea for humility. Humility before God as the sovereign creator and ruling king of his universe. The character of God is going to come into play in how we understand this issue. Also, humility before God's word and its clarity. I don't think you're going to find this section as unclear or difficult to understand as you might think. Understanding it is easy. Accepting it is the harder part. I want to beg you also for humility before one another as we talk and pray about these issues. My prayer for months, you can talk to our pastors and elders, has been that this this section of Scripture would unite us, not divide us. That it would be something we would sit under as a banner of God's great sovereignty and we would look at our own salvation in wonder and say, how can I be saved? What comfort it is that I am that we wouldn't be distracted by argumentation. And then what I want to talk to you about over the next few minutes is this. Humility to hold in tension theological paradox. A paradox is two truths that seem to contradict but are held to be true together. These two truths are God's sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility in salvation. The Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign over our lives, but it also teaches that we are required to make our own decisions for which we are entirely and eternally responsible. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility, but human responsibility does not negate God's sovereignty. Let's just take a little tour for a moment. Just listen. These are going to be too fast to turn to. Let's look at how um, God's sovereignty is affirmed. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That's pretty sovereign of God's rule over a person's life. Ephesians 1.11, 
We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works, speaking of God, all things, not some, all things after the counsel of his will. Everything, all things comes under the counsel of God's sovereign will. Romans 9, 21, we'll get here in a few months. Or does the potter, not the potter, speaking of God, have a right over the clay, speaking of us, to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Absolute, unquestioned sovereignty. But if you just sat on those verses, you'd be out of balance. Because, listen to these verses about man's responsibility. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Looking at our belief. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will recompense and repay every man according to his deeds. Man's responsibility. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly, the Lord says, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Therefore, we can see that what we do in this life has bearing on our eternity. And yet we also understand that what God does in his choosing and predestination and foreknowledge does as well. Now, sometimes the truth of God's sovereignty and the truth of man's responsibility are not in different parts of the Bible. They're sometimes in the same verse or the same context. Listen to this familiar uh, passage in Luke 22. Verse 22, we read, For indeed the Son of Man is is going uh, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So, Jesus is going to be determined, uh, 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 rejected and turned over to the chief priests by a man who's responsible, but this was according to God's plan. So who was responsible for Jesus being turned over? Judas or God the Father? Or letter C, all of the above. Acts 2.23, you know this well. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That sounds pretty sovereign. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. So who crucified the Son of God? The Father or wicked men? Yes. Now look at how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are presented in the same context regarding salvation. Not long ago, I was talking to a brother who, who uh, uh, was not very fond of what we call the doctrines of grace. And we had a special moment because um, he quoted to me John 1.12. John 1.12 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Absolute man's responsibility, Right? But he didn't read the next verse, which says this, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. In the same two verses, man's utter responsibility, God's absolute predetermined will. Now, turn to John chapter 6 for a moment. I want to take you on a tour we've been on before, but it's something that I want you to see. 
And what I'm doing while you're turning there, if I can just give you a little bit of a map of where we're going. Today, I, what I want to do is show you the, the balance, the paradox of man's responsibility and divine sovereignty. And the reason I'm showing this balance is in the coming weeks, we're going to wade into a part of the scripture that talks about one side of that equation, God's providence and God's sovereignty and salvation. And I don't want anyone to accuse me of not knowing these other verses that are in the Bible. But when we deal with the verses that are about God's sovereignty, we have to deal with them at face value, and we will. But let's just look for a moment at, at the wonder of how Jesus himself, in teaching about these issues, holds them both in tension without resolving them. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Is that not clear? Our belief is the work of God. The reason I believe the gospel is God made me believe. It's the work of God. No one believes without God's work happening. They're both in the same verse in verse 29, 30, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. There's no request there. Make sure you're elect and then come to me if you're thirsty. The gospel general call is come. Come, please come. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry, come. Verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me and... The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The Father is giving, and we are coming. Which is it? It's both. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Clear, sovereign choice. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes, clear human responsibility, in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see how these truths are held right next to each other in the same verse or verse after verse. And Jesus gives no footnotes here. He just holds them as both true. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one will ever come to Christ unless the Father sovereignly draws that person to believe. Now, unless you start drifting over out of balance, verse 47 comes back and says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone, doesn't say the elect, or the predestined, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And he knew Judas, the one who would betray him. Verse 65, this is important. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. This has caused so much consternation in our day, but don't think that's new. Listen to what happened right after Jesus' affirmation of divine sovereignty and salvation in verse 66. As a result of this, this teaching... Many of his disciples, not 
the 12, these were people who were following him around at the time, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They didn't like it. They took their football and they went to another field. So lest you think this is something that only we have struggled with, they were struggling with when Jesus taught it. But don't miss the fact that Jesus asserts both truths. Do you see that? You're called to believe. You're not called to see if you're elect. And yet no one will believe unless God draws them and God makes them believe. You say, hang on, that can't be true. Remember when I told you we're walking on a high wire? You gotta be careful that you don't fall off of one side or the other. If we're going to navigate God's word, we have to embrace the concept of paradox, that these two uh, truths exist without conflict, even though in our minds they conflict. Only God can harmonize what our minds see as contradictory. Logical incompatibilities to humans are not problematic to the divine mind. J.I. Packer says this, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught us side by side in the same Bible, sometimes indeed in the same text. Both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority. Both, therefore, are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. Man is a responsible moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality, and man's responsibility is a reality too. In his book, Saved by Grace, Anthony Hokema, his words are helpful too, but they give us a real special insight that I think is important for our study. We must therefore affirm both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Both God's sovereign grace and our active participation in the process of salvation. We can only do justice to biblical teaching if we firmly hold on to both sides of the paradox. But since God is the creator and we are his creatures, God must have the priority. Hence, we must maintain that ultimately, the ultimately decisive factor in the process of our salvation is the sovereign grace of God. Hokum is right. We're going to affirm man's responsible. I didn't say, nor will I say, that he has free will. We're going to find out he doesn't have any will. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. But he is morally responsible. But the balance of our salvation between God's sovereignty and our responsibility sees the greater weight on God's sovereignty, on the God side of the equation. If you desire to be thoroughly biblical, you must be willing to embrace and assert seemingly opposite truths, truths that appear to contradict. And if you feel a logical tension, you're in a good place. If you feel yourself saying, hang on, hang on, that's, that's a good place. The problem comes when we hold on to only one side of that equation. Now, misunderstanding of these truths will, will land you into one of two errors. Remember, I said we're on a high wire. You fall off one side, you're on one error. You fall off the other side, you're on a, in another error. The one side is hyper-Calvinism. 
Hyper-Calvinism is that view that God is fatalistic and men are just mere robots. It's all predetermined. We're on some blind fate uh, journey that God has figured out and we really don't play any part in that. That's not what Calvin taught, by the way. That's not what the Bible teaches, by the way. That is a gross error of fundamental problems. On the other side, though, you can fall off into what is called Arminianism. Arminianism comes from the teaching of Arminius. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks. He countered Calvin with five questions. The five points of Calvinism didn't come from Calvin. They came from Arminius saying, I have five problems with Calvin, but that's, that's to come. The problem with Arminianism is that salvation is entirely possible by the choice of man's free will and moral neutrality. Man's morally neutral, has free will, can choose to receive God or reject God, that he has the power of that choice. But listen, it's not going to be possible for us to wrap our minds around these concepts in such a way that you're going to be logically satisfied. So if you're coming to church thinking, we're going to figure this out, if we could figure this out, wouldn't that be wonderful? We'd write a book together and make a lot of money, settle a lot of church history's debates. You need to be willing to hold on to tension. But in that tension, make no mistake, when you have the seesaw with God on one side and man on the other in our salvation, they're not even. It's tilted toward God. If you're honest with the text of God's word, you will need to affirm what he says in it, which is these things are received by faith. You you, you believe them. They transcend human logic and transcend human reason. Isaiah 55 Verse 6 and through 11, you know well. But listen to it in the context of salvation, which is the context that Isaiah was writing. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Stop right there. That means that there is a time when God will not be found and God will not be near. Whose choice is that? It's God's choice. Seek the Lord. There's the human responsibility. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. There's man's responsibility. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Just as a footnote, we'll see in Romans 8, all of these passages about God's sovereignty, God's providence are always comforting passages They're not controversial in the mind of the Spirit of God. They're comforting. Then he says this. As you start to try to figure this out, Isaiah understood it would be difficult, just as Jesus did. And he says, for my thoughts, quoting God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. The way you think is not my way, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are high, From above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow came down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, without accomplishing 
what I desire. God's absolute sovereignty. So much of our understanding on the subject begins with our understanding of God's sovereignty and holy character and our sinfulness and our absolute inability. The character of God informs how we think about this. But so does the character of our own hearts. Over the past few years, I have quoted a little booklet, paper actually, it's an article, What Difference Does It Make by Mark Webb a few times. And uh, this, I hope, is repetition for some of you. And for those who it is, enjoy it again. And for those who it's the first time, I, I trust it will provide clarity. Mark Webb talks about this. He says this, gives this account. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, God's providence and sovereignty and salvation, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come in, but not you. And you, but not you, etc. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts making them willing to come then this election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise have been there were it not for election heaven would be an empty place, and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded response, grounded as I believe that it is in scriptural truth, does not put a different complexion, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belongs all praise and glory for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. Helpful, isn't it? It's very helpful. Now, with those introductory thoughts, I want to provide a few pastoral thoughts about what we're going to study. You know, I sat back um, and I finished my sermon and then... Um, I was going over notes last night and, and thought, I, it's not done yet. It's, bread's not cooked. I, I want to just talk to you as your friend, as your pastor, as one of the shepherds here at Mission Road. Let me give you a list of, I don't know how many do I have, eight 
pleas, requests. First of all, we must accept, as we begin the study, we must accept the fact that God's sovereignty is accented more than our responsibility. Especially in the coming texts. We're going to get into Romans 9, and we're going to find some verses that will give you heartburn unless you really approach it with humility. It's going to be the main point that Paul drives home, that God is sovereign. In his words, he's the potter, we are the clay. Secondly, we must resist the temptation to run to errors of extremities. You can't become a hyper-Calvinist and just say we're never going to evangelize. That's not the point of, of, uh, of God's choosing. He's going to take care of it whether I'm there or not. And you can't also run to the side to say this is up to us, so I'm going to arm myself with every argument. And if I have better arguments, someone will finally come to, co- come to God. Resist extremity. Embrace paradox. Understand it's difficult. Don't cram these things into your mind and expect them to make satisfying logical sense to you. Number three, we must let the Bible say what it says at face value. You know, as I've read over the last few weeks on people who've had issues and basically Arminians who are who are struggling with these texts, what does foreknowledge mean? We'll study this later, but they say foreknowledge is not foreknowledge, it's foresight. God sees what's gonna happen. He doesn't know in a, in a sovereign sense. What happens is when someone doesn't like what the Bible says, they change the definitions. I think you're going to find the issue is not do you understand it. The issue is will you accept it. And just because you might not in your flesh like something the Bible says doesn't make it untrue. I remember when I first was wrestling with these issues, I didn't like what I was discovering at all. And the reason, if you go back to Horatius Bonner, which we will continue to come back to, is because I became suspicious of God's heart. Well, wait a minute. If God chooses some, then that logically has a double double predestination um, uh, view, which we're going to not receive or accept. Um, Double predestination is a way to try to make it make sense when you can't make it make sense. I remember wrestling with this and thinking, this can't be true, this can't be true, this can't be true. And I kept studying and studying and studying and said, I am left with no other conclusion than what these verses and these words mean. We have to be careful not to redefine them. That predestination doesn't mean what it says or election doesn't mean what it means or that foreknowledge doesn't mean anything other than it means it means foresight or something else. God does not have a speech impediment. When he speaks, he speaks clearly. A fourth plea, we must not let human reason be our guiding hermeneutic. If you come to these issues and these texts saying, I know what would make sense to me. If these verses don't make sense, then I'm going to make them make sense. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. These truths are too big for human wisdom, too large for human logic. We have to admit our finite limitations to understand the infinite mind of God. Number five, we must not allow our hearts to become suspicious of God's character and goodness. 
Resist the temptation to question the wisdom of God, to question the love of God, to question the justice of God, to question the integrity of God, to question the holiness of God. Human reason, human logic, human understanding are not adequate to this task. If you're there in Romans, look down for a moment at verse 13, excuse me, 14 of chapter 9. Paul's in the middle of discussing this where there's choosing and predestination and election happening with two twins who are in utero before they're even born. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? He knows what we're thinking. What shall we say then? Is there no, there is no injustice with God, is there? He understands we're going to begin saying, that's not fair. That's not right. That can't be true. Paul says, I know you're going to say that. And his answer is going to be, who are you to question the wisdom of God? Number six, please, I rarely say this, please trust me. Please trust that I will let God's word balance itself in due time with proper exposition. In the few weeks ahead of us, we are going to be on the side of the seesaw that's God's providence and sovereignty. When we come to texts like in John 6, let whoever will come and drink and eat, we'll accent man's responsibility when we're there. But we have to let God's word drive the agenda of our exposition in our church. That's why I'm doing this balancing act at the beginning because we're gonna seem awfully unbalanced as we do the passage that talks about God's sovereignty. Number seven, for those who are uncomfortable with this doctrine of predestination and election, and I've spoken to many of you, I know you're there, please know that these are given not to confront you as much as to comfort us. You know, sometimes I think we get lost in Romans 8, 29, and 30 with predestination, with foreknowledge, with election, with uh, God's uh, uh, absolute sovereignty, and we forget that these are there to give us comfort, that he's going to finish what he's begun in us. It's, it's the security of the believer that's the pastoral tone of this, not theological quagmiring. And number eight, we must never skip a subject or a verse in the Bible just because it is difficult or uncomfortable. It's the next verse, and we're gonna study it. Now with that, I wanna show you why I've done this introduction. Let me give you the outline that we probably won't get to for about three weeks here in the text, okay? Here's what we're gonna look at, the five links in God's golden chain of salvation in, 28 and 20, in 29 and 30. We're foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. We can't skip over this, and it takes some understanding to drop into these subjects. Please know that like Paul, who taught these truths, we must never lose our evangelistic zeal nor neglect the great commission to preach and make disciples. My prayer, my, 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 my hope, my... Uh, my absolute prediction is that if we understand this rightly, it will make us run to tell everyone and anyone of the saving grace of God. It won't make us retreat into the caricature of Calvinists that don't evangelize anyone. 